is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing America's legendary skit comedy show, Saturday Night Live. Launched some four and a half decades ago with a bunch of not ready for primetime players, all doing comedy without a net on live TV, Saturday Night Live has been a fixture of American popular culture, reestablishing its presence and power in our collective sense of humor one week at a time. At turns, hilarious, subversive, innovative, bewildering, irreverent, off-putting, provocative, and usually wildly uneven, Saturday Night Live has virtually reshaped the entirety of American comedy since its inception. The roster of its alumni is a who's who of some of the funniest people in modern comedy, including, and this just names a relative few, Fred Armisen, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Jim Belushi, Dana Carvey, Chevy Chase, Michael Che, Billy Crystal, Jane Curtin, Nora Dunn, Jimmy Fallon, Chris Farley, Will Ferrell, Tina Fey, Al Franken, Janine Garofalo, Gilbert Gottfried, Christopher Guest, Bill Hader, Phil Hartman, Jan Hooks, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, John Lovitz, Norm MacDonald, Kate McKinnon, Seth Meyers, Dennis Miller, Tracy Morgan, Garrett Morris, Eddie Murphy, Bill Murray, Mike Myers, Kevin Nealon, Lorraine Newman, Joe Piscopo, Amy Poehler, Gilda Radner, Chris Rock, Andy Samberg, Adam Sandler, Rob Schneider, Molly Shannon, Harry Shearer, Martin Short, Sarah Silverman, David Spade, Jason Sudeikis, Keenan Thompson, and Kristen Wiig. There are at least 10 to 12 distinct and different eras of SNL as the cast has come and gone over the years, each time redefining the tone and talent of the show. And that doesn't even begin to cover the phalanx of special guest stars who have come onto the stage over the years. The question isn't who in comedy has been on Saturday Night Live. The question is, who hasn't? The result is a show that is almost impossible to reference. It is as ubiquitous as oxygen and as easily taken for granted as sunlight. When it's good, it lifts us up to places where the ridiculous and the sublime and the sarcastic all dwell in celestial harmony. And when it's bad, ugh, we all feel the pain. But more than anything, it is always there to trigger that primordial sense of delight we get whenever we hear some of our favorite words of the weekend. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. With me today is Don Pardo impersonator, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, Bill. 30 Rock musical director, Tom Hespos. Happy to be here, Bill. <laughs> and Weekend Update anchor, Joe Pace. And that's the news to me. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. So normally we have all the order in which we handle our moments of truth sort of laid out. But I think keeping in the spirit of improv, I think we're just going to go, go freestyle here. So everybody's got their own moment of truth with, with SNL. It's a highly subjective experience because everybody has their own points of entry into this. Uh, and our various moments of truth are some of our favorite skits and why we love them so much. Guys, I'm going to throw it out to the table. Somebody, somebody pick this up with your, bring, bring your moment of truth out. I'll go ahead. I used to have this great ritual for Saturday Night Live because I think, you know, I got into, I was born in 72 and I got into SNL probably when I was about 10 years old. My parents would never let me stay up to watch it. We were probably one of the last people on our block to get a VCR. So like it was either live or nothing. You know, my, my memories of like the early watching and uh, SNL you know, I had a lot to do with Eddie Murphy. And for some reason, like the guy just got me. And like, I, I remember just laughing so hard, I, I, I couldn't even breathe. It was, it was just so damned funny. He did a lot on the show. And he did a lot of like crazy characters that were really out there. 
you know, everything from Gumby to, uh, you know, to Buckwheat to, you know, all that stuff. He did a lot of these crazy characters that were hysterical, but you would see him also do a lot of social commentary. So like my moment of truth was a skit that he did called White Like Me where he does it sort of like this you know, little mockumentary kind of style thing. So uh, he goes undercover as a white guy. He has makeup artists, you know, from the show come in and make <laughs> him a white guy and goes out into society. And it, it starts out like kind of innocent, like he's walking around and he's prepped for the role, read a lot of Hallmark cards, <laughs> yeah, but really uh, tight when he walks. And yeah, exactly. Great stuff, you know, that he's got to remember. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, <laughs> You know, it starts out pretty innocent. Like he walks into you know, a newspaper shop and uh, a newspaper newsstand and he, he gets comped a paper and he's like, well, and like, white people seem to like to give things to one another when they're alone. But, you know, <laughs> hops on a bus and like when the last black guy gets off, all of a sudden there's a big party on the bus. <laughs> Yeah. Woman turns off her coat. She's suddenly like serving drinks. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> Cocktail waitress is walking. You know, yeah, like, it's really hysterical. And then you know he does uh, you know some other stuff where he caps off. You know, like he goes yeah. in and tries to get a loan from a bank. And he's talking to like a black loan officer. And the guy's like, "You've got no collateral. You've got no ID, and you want to borrow how much?" <laughs> <laughs> that this black loan officer gets interrupted and told to go on break by you know his his boss <laughs> the room <laughs> he goes that was a close one wasn't it <laughs> breaks out the you know petty cash box and just starts stacks a hundred dollar bills here take what you want pay us back whatever or don't we don't care we don't care <laughs> <laughs> so good just this over the top yeah. you know like the thing about eddie murphy discovering like what white people do when yeah. they're alone and it was so funny the social commentary was just yeah. tremendous though and i loved that about it and uh you know it, it was so much different i think this was the kind of thing that eddie probably wanted to do on the show as opposed to a lot of the you know like he, it's, it's no secret he hated buckwheat you know after a while mm. having to do that and yeah. the, the other character, like Gumby and stuff like that. I, I think this was more the kind of thing that he wanted to do. And again, it just gave me those great, huge <laughs> belly laughs that like, you know, yeah. I, I remember like just never laughing so hard when I was that age, you know, 10, 11 years old. And then, you know, it was a rare treat to even get up to be able to stay up late enough to watch SNL. And, and, uh, you know, like I kind of had to do everything perfect that week. And, uh, not get into any trouble and not bomb any tests and to make sure my parents were in the right mood and they might let <laughs> me stay up and watch the show. So it was a, it was a very rare treat, but like when we got to see that and I got to see that, I could not stop laughing. It was just great. I, uh, I loved uh, Murphy's social commentary too. Uh, Mr. Robinson's neighborhood is just such a great run of sketches. Oh my God. Um, oh my God that was, funny. they're vicious. They're, they're viciously funny. Yeah. You know? Well, well, they were they savage. were so they were yeah. so good so savage they actually managed to get under fred rogers skin like like if you if you watch the, <laughs> the fred rogers you know documentary like nothing ever seemed to bother him except he was put off by eddie murphy's take neighborhood and he was it bothered him but it's only because it was so funny it was so direct and it was like you speaking to you you know the audience and just breaking that fourth wall it was, it was oh, when he goes out the window that one uh, and there was one of those where he like he's like he would often leave for me to go i yeah. gotta go out the window and he goes oh <laughs> my god and, and and honestly like you said 
so much of what Eddie Murphy wanted to do was the was the race stuff because you know you're talking about Reagan's America, you're talking about 1984, and, and you know things are weird. And, um, the the stuff he did with Joe Piscopo as Sinatra and uh, Stevie Wonder when they do Ebony and Ivory. Uh, oh my god! <laughs> oh. I remember like we used to when I was a kid we did rent the video, but that one uh, Eddie Murphy, best of Eddie Murphy was a was a frequent rental for us. That one, Chris Farley, and some others. But like we would frequently rent the Eddie Murphy for Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood and for the the Piscopo sketch for Ebony and Ivory, and just that whole sense of you know when he says "Together you're my amigo Negro" and he rhymes "amigo" and "Negro," it's like there's a special kind of just counterculture brilliance that I think is yeah. so seminal when SNL is at its best. Yeah. It is subverting our our popular culture as much as anything else. And, Murphy did that as well, as, for as lean as some of those years could be. Murphy was as good at, at that as just about anything. So Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, but also especially White Like Me. I mean, White Like Me was really, SNL, when it got started, I mean, its whole thing was, it was subversion, right? It was, it was all about trying to, you know, make, crack these jokes that you couldn't get away with in any other format. They would take on race and some pretty hard things. There's one particular skit early on with it's a job interview skit between Chevy Chase and Richard Pryor right where what it's you were going to say before you even said it right <laughs> yeah, so I got you know <laughs> yeah it's, it's hard and, and for those of you Dead honky. Seen, yeah 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 for those of you who haven't seen it <laughs> thankfully you can you can youtube any of these but the skit is Chevy Chase is giving a job interview to Richard Pryor for you know for this position and they're wrapping it up because we just want to do a quick word association exercise with you and very quickly starts dropping in mild racial epithets to see what he says and he keeps escalating the racial epithets Richard Pryor keeps escalating the comebacks to them at which point Chevy Chase finally drops the n-word with a hard r on him you know and Richard Pryor just goes dead honky he goes right okay sure well you got the job and then he's like and then you get they get and then they go right into the the salary negotiation and Richard Pryor's like your mama he goes after him and it's it's really funny but I read like that's one of the few times where a white comedian has dropped the n-word with a hard r on television and it actually helped improve race relations rather than rather than just hurt them you know and it's like that shows tradition i think there's a real fear after that first cast cycled through that they were never going to get back to that kind of comedy and for a while you really didn't i mean the show had that really rough patch in the early 80s where it was trying to re trying to refine itself and it took like somebody like murphy to maybe earn the chops he got with the, the goofier stuff like gumby and buckwheat and whatnot yeah, at that point, he was like running the show, right? He was the biggest guy. So he could do things that were perhaps a bit more daring, but who's going to tell him no? So he was able to get the juice to do things like White Like Me, which even now is like, you know, you, you look at it and you're like, man, like that's just, you know, you could do, you could do an update of that. And it would still hit really hard because not a lot has changed really, <laughs> you know, at least the, what the thing, kinds of things that, that that's talking about. I mean, you could, and you can imagine, you know, somebody else doing something like that, but how black people and white people are treated differently by the police or something. I mean, you could, yeah, that, that would, that would land pretty flush, you know, but like that kind of humor especially today, yeah, especially today. Um, but yeah. Murphy was willing to, to do that. And I think people had feared that was gone from the show and he proved it wasn't. And thankfully it stuck around, you know? Yeah. I mean, they kept him and, uh, you know, the whole cast turned over except for him and Piscopo, I think was. Yeah. Right after, right after the disastrous 1980 season, which, yeah. which you can read about. And it was like, you read about it and you're like, man, how did the show even make it past that? <laughs> it's just, yeah. It just seems impossible. But the way the show references race though, I mean, it's done some really cool stuff over the years. And I think it, it even still continues to do so now. I think, a skit I really like that's much more recent this is from 2016 is um it's from the whole Black Jeopardy series which is oh yeah 
just riotous, but there's a great one where Tom Hanks is in it and he plays a, he plays a Trump voter on Black Jeopardy. The whole joke is just that, you know, he's this poor white guy from somewhere. And, you know, the reality is that the answers that he and his Black contestants are giving are all strangely familiar to each other. Like they have, the, the joke is they're all poor. They all have a lot in common. They all have, they all share very similar hardships and they're all getting along all of a sudden until at the very end, you know, suddenly Tom Hanks's character drops some racist kind of thing. And they're like, oh, that broke it. You know, and you're like, oh, we were so close, you know. And, but, it, but it was this great, it was this great piece of racial commentary that was just hilarious, but also kind of talked about an uncomfortable truth, which is like, we're more alike than we're different. And we're very easily, we're very easily wedged apart from each other, you know. And, and, and I thought it was a, a telling commentary. And, and SNL has always had that ability to tell those kinds of jokes when we need to hear the most. And that's one of the things I really like about the show. But White Light Me is... I mean, I still think about that show. It's so, it was so funny. And I remember seeing it as a kid before I really understood, frankly, what racism really was all about. I mean, I grew up on Sesame Street and all that. I grew up in the Northeast. Oh, yeah. I grew up, I grew up thinking, like not really understanding just how pervasive racism really, really was thinking, well, you know, you know, it was, it was a problem that happened years ago. Right. And when I saw that, I laughed at it really hard. And then as I've gotten older, I, you know, I was like, oh, oh, oh now i see <laughs> you know like you know and, and, and like like bring it back up you know and watch the clip on yeah. uh, or wherever <laughs> it really is the first I, I think comic representation of white privilege at least that i can remember because i mean that that is what what murphy's getting at there yeah. oh sure that that, yeah. that you know it is kind of a boys club or whatever mm-hmm. if yeah. you're white the, the skit that, that Bill references between Pryor and chevy chase is is also referencing that perhaps a little more obliquely as so much of Richard Pryor's work did, right? I mean, a lot of that is about Pryor. But Murphy, I mean, the interesting thing about Eddie Murphy is I've seen it written where he was the biggest star ever to come out of SNL. And that's debatable, I guess. But, you know, you look at the mid to late 80s and was there a bigger star than Eddie Murphy? I don't know. I don't know that there was. Um, (laughs) You could made a lot of movies, man. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, it was a star that rose and came down pretty fast too. I mean, he doesn't have the staying power of of, uh, Bill Murray or someone like that, obviously. but I think if you measure his box office receipts against Bill Murray's, I think, I think you, can, you can look, he was bigger. He had a, he had a, he had a higher uh, prime, but a shorter prime. Uh, yeah. I mean, what about the uh, joke? Think, you, uh, who's America's dad now? <laughs> Yeah, that was, <laughs> yeah, when he came back to the show, yeah. that was that was like it hit me like a meteor. That was so <laughs> hilarious because it. Re- oh my god! Think, oh, he yeah. just transformed himself. He's like, all right, I can't yeah. do this forever. Yeah, right. Continue, and you know, I'm gonna be, you know, we're gonna do like you know, Doctor Doolittle and uh, you know, Sherman Clump and, and uh, Pluto okay. Nash and all that nonsense. Boomerang, yeah, right? I, I yeah. love Boomerang, but Boomerang's funny. Yeah. But I, I'll stipulate that when he made when he went and made Beverly Hills Cop, he was the biggest star in America. There's no question about that. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I'll, I'll stipulate that. Yeah, but um, you know, I mean, if you ask, you know, you could ask kids today who's bigger Eddie Murphy or Tina Fey. I don't know, but but all of that being said, um, clearly he was a generational talent. But, but apart from all that, you know, that initial crew, they're only on for five years, right? Which is like in SNL time is like a whole geologic era, right? But, yeah, but-, but, but, but in real time, that's actually not a long period of time to create a massive legacy for oneself. And those guys did in the, in the, in the framework of the show. I mean, they, they created, you know, footsteps people have been trying to fill for 30, 40 years ever since in their own weird Bill, way. you ignorant yeah. slut. Gilda Radner has never been replaced absolutely irreplaceable 
Yeah, Gilda Radner and Jane Curtin. I'd argue like but I, like, I love Jane Curtin, but yeah. Gilda Radner was she was special. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, no, she really was. We've seen a lot of lot of talented women on SNL. Most uh, recently, even more so. I think Faye and Wig would probably Faye be Wig, uh, Kristen Wig. I think is one of the top two to three performers they've ever had. Personally, I, I just good. I think she's a genius. <laughs> she's pretty funny. And she's probably go oh, Kate. Oh, Kate McKinnon right there. I, I'm a big fan of Kate McKinnon. <sighs> Kate McKinnon is a very gifted. Okay, Four. she slaughters me. Yeah, Kate McKinnon's a genius. Absolutely. Yeah, no, she's 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 really damn funny. I, I, it's hard to put her in a rating just because she's still doing her thing. Like it's unfair yeah. to judge the current people by the you know. But 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 I get your I get your point though, Chris. Uh, and and Radner was very unique and just hit a particular wavelength that I think she really was. Can you I imagine hanging out with Gilda Radner and Gene Wilder. Like imagine those being your buddies. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, how much fun was she? She. All the fun. Yeah, she, all, she the was fun. all the fun. All the fun. Yeah. I, I think it's it says a lot that, I think it says a lot that nobody's tried to re Radner her in the years since. They they realize that you just can't, just don't, because she was she was something precious and unique and just don't honor that and just stay the hell away. <laughs> you yeah. know? Lily Tomlin came closest. Honestly, like Lily Tomlin, like kind of tried to play in that. Yeah, lane. she was never as she funny, did. Though. No, I agree. Right. I agree. Yeah, she yeah. tried to play in the lane. It wasn't. Like, she tried. Any of the interviews, you know, where the guys talk about her and like, oh, so was, reverent. Yeah, you, yeah. They, they're just. Yeah. No, nothing can touch it because no. can touch her because she's just so you know she was so critical to the chemistry of that like. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want you touching it. Well, Tom, that was an awesome moment. Thank you for sharing. All right, next up. I too am a. Uh... A big fan of the Eddie Murphy years. My favorite was Buckwheat, who you know was played as literally Buckwheat, the former star of the Little Rascals, who's all grown up and internationally beloved multimedia <laughs> star, who you know appears in like advertisements for Buckwheat jeans, uh, for for uh, you know standards albums, and and Buckwheat, Buckwheat oh. man, oh, he was just funny. But but you know Tom to mention that that <laughs> Murphy got sick of him, and <laughs> and he decided to kill him off. And I guess it was like right at the end of an episode that they did it. And yeah. they, they they broke in like you know like a news update stuff. I think they did it during Weekend Update. Yeah, Buckwheat has been shot, and they show the dusting. Hey, Mister Wheat, yet? Pop 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 pop. not. <laughs> <laughs> so the the next week they come back to it and and it's it is a it's like an extended sketch that goes through the whole episode joe piscopo is playing uh, ted koppel doing uh news updates and they they keep replaying the video and keep replaying it over and over and over again and they they interview uh all, all kinds of people that buckwheat's killer knew and, and they all give the same answers, more or less. Some version of kind of a loner, kept to himself. And then the interviewer would ask, do you think he killed Buckwheat? Oh, yeah. It's all he ever talked about. This gets me to this day. I, it's just it's so, so daggone funny to me that, that I can't hardly stand it. And, you know, the preacher does it. The, the guy he worked with. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, I asked him why. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's all he ever talked about. In fact, I, I asked him why he was working so hard. He said it was because I'm saving up a, for a gun to buy to kill buckwheat with. 
and <laughs> so it was so open to everybody who would bother to listen. Everybody, I, if anybody uh, paid even the slightest bit of attention, yeah. fuck, we would be alive. <laughs> no, like, nobody cared. And, but but the whole thing is, is of course, ultimately, this is 1983. Three, I think I it is two or two. three, three um, 83. So like two years after Reagan was shot, and and, and, and Lenin, John right. Lennon was shot, and the Pope. And it's also three years after CNN was born. So, you know, this is an early response to the birth of the 24-hour news cycle and how the news, like, drums these things into your head. There's even a guy, uh, like an expert being interviewed, some professor, who's like, they they ask him, what kind of person would shoot buckwheat? And and the guy's like, well, probably someone who wants to be famous. And the media is really bad about making them famous for killing people. (laughs) <laughs> so, yeah, you know, the whole thing is is just a meta, is just a meta commentary on the news media, and it, it never stopped yeah. being funny to me. He was killed off because Murphy hated him, but yeah. every time Murphy has come back, I believe he has done buckwheat. That's that's irony for you, because, because buckwheat would have wanted it that way. We're not <laughs> killing this guy off. Like we're gonna stretch this. Out. Yeah, exactly. and, and they they kept mentioning buckwheat after after Murphy was gone. They kept mentioning buckwheat during episodes mm-hmm. every now and again and, th- I, I and would then, love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings where you know like oh you know i'm sick of the character i don't yeah. want to do it anymore oh we got people tuning in just to see you play buckwheat and yeah, you're right. not killing them off or at least you're yeah. not killing them off in the way that you think you are oh <laughs> <laughs> well, right eventually it turns out that buckwheat had faked his own death <laughs> to draw out <laughs> the real killer which was of which course yeah. Alpha. Alpha. <laughs> I remember seeing that when it first showed, you know, I was 13 years old or so. So like you, Tom, I didn't always get to see Saturday Night Live. It was not a guaranteed thing. I'd be able to, to see it, right? This Tetris of whether or not my mom and dad would or would not be watching TV that late at night and would or would not be okay with me hanging along and staying up to watch it and would or would not decide to go to church early in the morning like there's like all these things that had to be just right for for the stars on for me for me to watch snl but i saw it that night and i remember watching it and chris the thing a couple things i remember is when it broke in the way they did it it caught my mom so off guard she thought it was an actual news break in she's like wait wait, stop billy stop wait a minute it's like buckwheat is dead and she goes god damn it It just killed me as a kid. I'm like, ah, ha, ha, you thought Buckwheat was shot. She's like, stop it. My dad's like giggling in the background. I'm like, you thought Buckwheat was really dead. Um, <laughs> but the other thing that I thought was really, really amazing about it, and even as a kid, I picked up on this, is that I remember the day when Reagan got shot. I probably saw Reagan get shot on TV 15, 20 times, yeah. right? I'm, an, I'm like an 11-year-old, 10, 10 and a half, 11-year-old kid watching him get, you know, shot. So when they, they kept replaying the, you know, and in case you haven't seen it, here it is. <laughs> like the world's most widely reported story. We're going to show it to you again just because we have the tape. And it's like, as a kid, I laugh. And I was also like, but that's how they do, you know? And I got the the parody. I was like one of the first times I've seen like adult level parody that kind of landed with me and it made an impact. I really, I really love that. At that time, only Eddie Murphy could have carried that off. Like only he had the cachet to even play a character like Buckwheat. That's a charged character, right? And he managed to make it something that he had control over. So there's kind of like, we get back to the racial humor of the show. He was able to walk in line with that character that nobody else really could have. Yeah. And because he did it so with such virtuosity, 
that when it came time <laughs> to, to not just kill Buckwheat, but to make a goddamn media circus out of it, it was hilarious because you never felt bad about the character. It wasn't indicted at all. It was, it was hilarious. And Murphy just kept making it hilarious. And, and it was just, uh, just a, rare, a rare moment of comedy that, it, oh, so good. You know what I wonder is the extent to which Murphy himself wrote the subsequent buck, you know, death of buckwheat material because you know at that point his he's only on screen when he's repeatedly shot and his only line is ouch i'm shot i, I believe and so the rest of it is joe piscopo and and the other actors i wonder i don't know i'd like to know who wrote it really yeah, yeah. because it, it's just a brilliant piece of comedy beauty of the writers rooms on those is i'm not sure that there's ever um a singular praxis for a lot of the skits, right? Like, I mean, I think a lot oh. of them come from uh, collaborative exercise that yeah, some of the actors things bounce off each other. Not, yeah, I'm sure that's not true. Been involved with, um, yeah, and so the they come from a place of of you know, there's a lot of improv. It's heavy improv, and there's also a lot of uh, collaborative writing. Well, I mean, you know, we we did see Diner Lobster, which was very much. One person's <laughs> sketch. <laughs> Who am I? <laughs> that was that was a piece of genius, no doubt. Oh my goodness! I hadn't seen it, Bill, and I thought oh. I was gonna die watching it. <laughs> when it got shown to me by by my sister in law, she was like, "Oh, Bill, you know, you know, have you seen the John Mulaney episode?" I'm like, "No." And at that point, he was really blowing up as a as a stand up comic, and I didn't realize he had had this run as a writer in SNL. And she goes, "No, no, no, he he." He hosted and he did this sketch. You've just got to see it. And she played it for me. And it was Diner Lobster. And for those of you who haven't seen Diner Lobster, again, it's on YouTube. It's fantastic. But it simply, it just trades. <laughs> <laughs> it trades on the ludicrousness of somebody who goes to a Greek diner and orders the lobster that's in the tank. Like, dude, that's a pet. That's here for the store. You don't actually order the lobster, right? And the guy's like, no, I'm going to order the lobster. I'm like, wait what and suddenly like the whole the whole play is like well i guess he's gonna do it he's gonna order the lobster and then the thing somehow just shifts to this massive lay Miz version where the lobster comes out and sings this big song about how he's been chosen and how it's not cool to choose him and his, his daughter comes out and then like that they man the barricades it's just like this crazy <laughs> over-the-top thing that i just it just it's, it's a really recent one that just slaughters me and i come back to that so often John Mulaney, that was his skit. <laughs> and he was like, and he never got to do it. And it was actually a condition of him to go back on the show and host, I believe, was that he got to do that skit. That was like the one bucket item, like skit he always wanted to do. And oh, I'll come, back. Down. I'll come back. I'll come I'm, back. I've got, but you're giving me diner lobster. So that's the, yeah. one, that's the one shining example. I'm sure there are many others. That's the one that, yeah, to your point, Chris, I think that stands out as the exception against the otherwise very super collaborative process. But, you know, with that, I think I'd like to move on. Joe, let's talk about your moment of truth because... Your moment of truth, is, for me, is a really interesting one for a bunch of different reasons, but I'd love for you to, sure. to, to talk about it first and walk, walk through it. You know, it's interesting to me that, you know, for me, there are really, um, you know, you mentioned the 10 to 12 different eras, distinct eras. There are really two to me that are, are my favorites. One is the original. I'm such a huge Blues Brothers fan that <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was painful for me to not to pick that, those characters <laughs> for this. But, but they were so me, good. You know, they were so and, good. And being five years younger than you guys, the late 80s and early 90s was really my time of watching SNL. And I think that um, high school kids, for the first time having the freedom to stay up with your buddies and watch it, like that is like, that's prime time. That is, that is the wheelhouse for SNL. And, you know, you get the late night sillies at 1130, you've been waiting, you've been drinking soda and eating Twizzlers, waiting for it to come on. 
And for me, the cast that that was, that was the Adam Sandler and, you know, Dana Carvey and, you know, that cast. But Chris Farley was the funniest part of that cast (laughs) for us. And we would, we'd rent the, the Eddie Murphy best of, we'd rent the Chris Farley best of right next to it because the guy was such an, an absolute comic mammoth. And I mean that in every sense of the word, that he just was a huge presence on, on the stage whenever he came in. And there was this, this was a guy who would do anything for a laugh, just the, the, the amount of commitment he had to whatever the role was um, and the physical comedy and everything else. This is a guy that they hoisted up in the air as the lunch lady, you know, mm-hmm. doing the, 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 the swimming motions. But the character for Chris Farley that brought that home most effectively to me is, is Matt Foley, inspirational speaker. This was the guy that, you know, you think, <laughs> you think of the skit, and here's David, here's David Spade and Christina Applegate sitting on the couch as the kids who have been discovered that they're maybe smoking a little pot, and, and, and mom and dad, and dad as, as God love him, Phil Hartman, is sitting there trying to be the cool dad in his khakis and he's saying you know i know you kids are into some heavy stuff now and maybe we're gonna get you know we're gonna turn this thing around and and we've got matt foley an inspirational speaker we've hired to come and talk to you guys he's been down in the basement drinking coffee for the last five hours i think i think he's just about ready now and here and you don't expect it it comes out of nowhere he calls him up from the basement and here comes chris farley in the plaid jacket with the glasses and and he comes up and he just launches into this buffoonery that is a send up of the, uh, you know, the self-help guru. And he clearly has no idea what he's doing, but he just is going to yell at these kids and he gets right up in their face and it's Chris Farley at an 11 and (laughs) the other actors can't function. They literally can't. I don't know if they had other lines. I don't know if they were supposed to respond. they try and they can't. They, you can they, see their just, faces come and go as they're like they, always they, breaking up and like getting it together again. And they're like constantly they're, going back and forth. They're trying to be professionals and, and you can't do it because here's, here's Foley just, just launching and you're in a van down by the river, but, and it's, it's out of control. And even just thinking about it now, it's, it's the hardest I've ever laughed in my life. Is that, is that Matt Foley? And, there's the physical comedy of Chris Farley being a heavier guy. And when he starts doing the back on track dance, it's shades of fat man in a little coat and it's the whole bit. And nobody knew how to use being the heavy guy. I mean, Belushi had done it. Candy had done it, but Farley took what they had done and lifted it to this art form of owning it. And, and we could talk a little bit about, about that laughing with laughing at and all that, but, and he throws himself on the table. But to me, the funniest part isn't, oh, fat guy falls on the coffee table and it breaks. That's not the laugh line. The laugh line is how utterly pathetic this creature is. Um, and it's just, I, I've never laughed so hard. It's the Van Damme of the river. Yeah, that's a good yardstick to use, though. Like, the, you know, can you crack up the other staff, uh, you know, the, the other yeah. guy asked? Who you know, and, and can they not hold hold it together? I mean, there are only a few folks that could really do that consistently. I mean, yeah. Murphy's one, Chris Farley's definitely one of the others. Except yeah. literally anybody on stage with Jimmy Fallon, anybody can crack that. <laughs> well, guy yeah. yeah, yeah, Fallon yeah, yeah. He's particular weakness. He's laughing right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Seriously, it's like the most unhinged, scared straight speech you ever heard. You realize that this guy. <laughs> 
this guy already, his life is more of a ruin than the kids he's trying to save. And not because he's done the thing the kids have done. It's just, you don't know like how his life spun out of control. It just did, right? And he's just, he's just so bonkers. The Matt Foley skip, but also Chris Farley in general is that one of the things about SNL for me is that there are entire chapters of this saga that I just don't know. You know, really from like, from like 1990 to 2000, I pretty much didn't watch the show for one reason or another. I was either in college and didn't have easy access to it necessarily, or I just graduated and didn't have, didn't really have TV. I missed out on the entirety of Chris Farley when he was doing his thing. And the, Chris Farley only came on my radar when I learned that he died very, very tragically at the age of 33 and not unlike you know, John Belushi, uh, right. Same age. So I didn't know who he really was. I didn't really know his work. I just, and I I knew that he was hugely influential. I knew he was hilarious. He had this really big impact in a really short period of time, but I just never really engaged it. I just didn't, you know, I just, one of those things. So believe it or not, I didn't see Van Down by the river until we decided we're going to do this episode. Wow. Right, and you're Tom, welcome. And, right, and then and you know you guys post the link, and I'm watching this, and I mean it's like weaponized comedy. I almost like had a you know, I almost had a substantial hospital bill from the laughter here. I was like just going off, but one of the funny things about it was that I've seen that gif of him doing the whole like you know back yeah. and forth walk thing. I've seen that animated gif a million times and didn't know where it was from, and I was always like, boy, I'd love to come across a source material for that out in the wild someday. That'd be great. And I'm like, there. <laughs> oh my god but we're gonna get and, this back. Oh. yeah and then like he takes out that table and smashes it and i learned later that was an accident he didn't mean to do that but like i couldn't i couldn't really tell that in the sketch like everything had gotten so bizarre by that point like anything's possible like sure <laughs> random destruction of like furniture. An accident. why not <laughs> the, difference, yeah. the difference between the difference that foley brought was that all of these other were playing characters like eddie murphy for all his brilliance playing characters Chris Farley was the person I said, there was an earnestness to what he was doing. There was no guile. There was no, I mean, he was so brilliant at, at being like happily the butt of the joke. And Chippendale's sketch yes, is that's, the perfect that's, example of that. That's right? the great example of that, that he was willing to do really um, self-abnegating things um, and really degrading things for the joke. Right. And, um, but so was the a, Chippendale sketch, real quick, is basically it's basically he's in a dance off with Patrick Swayze, for the one who gets a role with the you know, who has just come off of uh, uh, like Roadhouse, of, of, of Dirty Dance, yeah. 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 So he's so, like, sh- yeah. But but there is for the whole the whole Chris Farley, and you know, it goes on to his film career with Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. It's like he means well, and he's a he's a he's a well-meaning guy. He just he can't get out of his own way. He's clumsy. He's kind of dumb and whatever. But like, there's a, a a series of SNL skits where he's interviewing famous people. And he's got like a, it's almost like between oh, two yeah. stars, right? <laughs> but he does this interview with Paul McCartney. And he's like, you know, he can't get it together because he's so starstruck. And he does this thing where he's like, you remember, you remember the Beatles? That was awesome. Like, and these <laughs> it's like the way that any of us would be interviewing it's like high-powered earnest doofiness like dude hold it together man you're like and you can't do it you can't do it remember that you remember that yeah that was awesome like the questions that we would ask of paul mccartney would be the same remember that that was so cool yeah i was there chris farley was was so lovable and so pitiable and he was just such a, a, a a cuddly wholesome creature 
that, that it was candy esque, but with a with a Belushi energy. Because mm-hmm. Candy was not an energetic creature, um, with the exception of maybe Ox and, and Stripes. But like, but Candy wasn't one of these uh, high strung animals. Yeah. Chris Farley brought an energy that elevated any sketch that he was in. Uh, yeah. And and you would watch talents like, and we can dis- disagree, but like talents like um, Adam Sandler or David Spade would just stand back and be like, I can't keep up. I can't do it. Looking at Farley's work purely through retrospect, I think I see him a little bit differently than people who actually experienced him in the moment because he, he's a comedic genius and there are things he, he does, I see them on their own merit that just, just freaking slaughter me. There's actually, there actually is one skit I did see back in the day, which is um, Superman's funeral. Where, like DC, <laughs> you know, and it's another yeah. And this is a great example of like SNL is always because of its format, it could be super topical and capture something that's trending right at that moment. And DC had made a real big deal of the fact that they had killed Superman for the first time in the comics, and they meant to. And we all know in the comics, nobody really stays dead, but DC looked like they meant it this time, right? We didn't and know so, it then. We didn't know it then. <laughs> and so the whole world is like, I mean, and like Main Street America, people don't read comics. Like, wait a minute, wait, wait, what? We're in America without Superman now? Are you serious? And it was like a point of national conversation for a while. And SNL, as SNL does, had to make a joke about it. And so Superman's funeral is just all the heroes coming up and they're just trying to get through this funeral with Superman. They're so broken up over it, you know. Jimmy Olsen is there at the door letting people in and all. And um, he doesn't recognize Black Lightning and won't let him in, which is like a great piece of racial humor there. Sinbad is Black Lightning. Sinbad is Black Lightning. He's like, yo, man, like, he reaches out to Batman at the time there was Batman and the Outsiders and Black Lightning was in that. It's like, Batman, yo, come on. And Batman like won't acknowledge him. Uh-huh. <laughs> he gets shown the door. But there's a great moment where all these heroes are, you know, are all, are all talking about this. And then finally, you know, you know, Batman goes, and by the way, we just want to thank the delegation from Marvel Comics who come to, to pay their respects. And you want to come up and say a few words, you know, and, and these Marvel heroes show up, right? <laughs> in the DC universe. And they're led by Chris Farley as the Hulk, right? And the Hulk gets up there. He's like, oh, he's like grunting and groaning. And then he's like, me just have a few words to say. And he puts some glasses on, suddenly transforms into eloquent Hulk. And right? so he reads, reads this, this, this beautiful moving speech. And at the end, he loses it. It's like, that's just Hulk smash. And just... <laughs> Breaks the lecture. Breaks the lecture. He just like he just hammer fists and smash and just like stand, stomps off. And like that just on its own is just objectively hilarious. Like even you know you have to be you know you have to, yeah folks sad. Like two words never uttered ever, but he did. It was so 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 funny. Getting to my moment of truth, you know, I spoke before about how I had these big missing periods in SNL viewing history, and I think some of the funniest stuff that they've done in recent years has just kind of passed me by. But certainly in the last ten years or more, for me, SNL has been more like a comedy brand that I I consume on demand, and I see it when people refer individual skits to me as opposed to a show that I watch, you know, like I was meant to back in the old days. So, you know, I look for SNL skits when they come around, but I don't necessarily look for the show as, as I once did. And I think what really got me thinking like that was the skit that is for me my moment of truth, which is Lazy Sunday, which is this fantastic short video produced by, uh, you know, Lonely Island, right, which is basically Adam Sandberg and company. And in this, he partners with uh, Chris Purnell. And it's just these two, these two goofy white boys who are just rapping really, really emphatically about this lame Sunday where they wake up in late afternoon, 
they're going to go watch the Chronicles of Narnia. They're going to go buy a bunch of cupcakes and they're, you know, what map app are we going to use to get there? And they're going to get snacks at the store to sneak in. And, you know, Mr. Pib plus red vines equals crazy delicious. And, you know, delicious. crazy delicious, you know, and it's just, and they're just dropping these beats and like, like they're about to kill somebody over it. It was so hilarious and so off the script uh, for what SNL was doing at the time. It was just like this, this whole is out of left field and nobody knew what to do with it. And at that time, this little service called YouTube was getting up and running. And so they were able to put it out there as well as on TV. And they're able to do things in these shorts that they just put on YouTube instead of TV, but still under the SNL brand. It's kind of easy to forget about it now, like a million hours of content gets uploaded to YouTube like every hour, you know. But back then, uh, Lazy Sunday was one of YouTube's first truly like big viral hits. I mean, it racked up over the first weekend, it just went crazy, racked up like 200 million views, which in today's numbers are not crazy. But back then, that was just absolutely context shattering, right? It was like, what is going on here? It didn't just redefine how SNL could reach audiences, it redefined comedy. They did a bunch of others that followed it, right? Uh, not the least of which was the sublimely hilarious fake R&B trio of Dick in a Box, Mother Lover, and then Three-Way Golden Rule, where Is Sam... Pants. It was, well, we got Sandberg and Justin Timberlake, you know, you know <laughs> teaming up and just... They're totally making fun of that New Jack Swing kind of 90s R&B kind of vibe, you know? Like, oh, yeah, girl, I'm going to love you so good, that kind of song. And they just, they made so much fun of it. And it was so good. But Lazy Sunday, it was one of those things that was so big, it redefined what you could actually do with a whole medium and what you could do with internet comedy, you know? And yeah. it just it just has this massive, there's like a before Lazy Sunday and after Lazy Sunday kind of history to, to comedy on the internet. And it's, whether you like that video or not, you have to acknowledge how important it is. A lot of people have been chasing that particular dragon ever since, maybe not as successfully, but that one thing was so huge. Like it only could have happened with SNL because SNL has had this history of innovation since the very beginning. They've always been willing to try goofy stuff that maybe can't fit anywhere else, but they, they will give stuff a chance in that show. And a lot of times it doesn't work, but that's what experimentation is all about. They just happen to do it in public, right? Being from that business and, you know, having lived through that era, being in that business, you know, there were a bunch of, you know, bigger established brands of things that were like, you know, would let you experiment, not knowing quite how big it could get. But if you had a viral explosion, like, you know, they did with Lazy Sunday, they would quickly turn around and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, <laughs> now we're going to need to get the lawyers involved. And now, you know, all, the, all this stuff with the brand and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like, you got to hand it to them for just giving them the freedom to have, you know, Lonely Island as its own sort of like thing with the brand. I mean, everybody else screwed that up pretty much. With, with <laughs> yeah. Notable yeah. exceptions, everybody else screwed that up. And I mean, and to be honest, I think part of it is the fact that Lauren, Lauren Michaels just didn't understand their humor, but he knew that it was really successful. So it's like, just look, do your thing, run, run and play. But also like he could choose, he could pick and choose which shows would run on the show, which shows would run online, because if the content was too, too blue, he can go, well, just have it run online. That's okay. There's no censors there, you know? And that was the first time they could actually jump on either side of that fence of, can you say this in public? Can you not say it in public kind of stuff? They mind that really, really well, you know? It's been said that Lazy Sunday launched YouTube. Um, yeah. It was gigantic. And it changed the way we experience or consume humor. Yeah. It really kind of fundamentally did. Plus, it's just objectively funny as hell. I mean, watching, yeah. these, <laughs> watching these two geeks gangster rap about Chronicles of Narnia, it's just like, it's just, 
it just makes me giggle every time I see it. You know, it's just, it's just so funny. And actually, I, I've shown it to my kids and they were like, this is the best thing ever. They can recognize the particular vein of humor that Sandberg is, is mining, which is the whole, not making fun of the music, but using the music to make fun of, they're making fun of machismo a whole lot. They're, they're constantly tearing down just these, you know. I'm on a have, boat. I'm on a boat. I just had sex. And like, <laughs> like all the things that these like, guys typically brag about in songs, they're just like self-deprecating themselves. You know, I jizz in my pants, right? Like, oh, that's, right. that's my, that's my favorite. My that's, that's, uh, the <laughs> best part, the best part, let me just say, pants. by the way, the best part of jizz in my pants, is, and I've never said the sentence, but the best part of jizz in my pants is <laughs> that it starts out with this long arc narrative. It takes a long time. I met this girl and this thing. And <laughs> as the video progresses, the, the, the event horizon gets shorter and shorter. Yeah, it's like a geometrically right? shortening ima- yes, event horizon. exactly. It is so brilliantly done. Like by the end, it's a, it's a breeze through the window, right? Like, I mean, and it's like nothing captures adolescent masculinity better than the breeze through the window. And I do- <laughs> exactly. Never got that. It gets so bad that even one of the singers, like, guys, come on, man. He's <laughs> like, can we just pull it together for the end of the song, please? Yeah, clean up on aisle five. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. It's so funny. And actually, Justin Timberlake was in that one, too, because he, he's the guy cleaning up aisle five, like with his disapproving look on his face. Like, yeah, oh, come man. on, fellas. You can't, you can't do that. What are you doing, you know? But that uh, was the, 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 yeah, I'm on a boat. I mean, that's where T Pain, I mean, the whole experience, you know. Like, <laughs> That's yeah. my that's my intersection with T Pain. I've never heard of that guy's real stuff, but I know I'm on a boat. <laughs> I'm on a boat, exactly, exactly. You know, but, but but that form that form of musical humor, especially, was really 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 hilarious. Flight of the Concords, the whole. I mean, like, oh, yeah. you know, like yeah, I guess it all. You know, but you know, you didn't see a lot of that in SNL. Often you saw a lot of straight up kind of you know skit humor or stand up, but you didn't necessarily see music as a as, as a medium no. for humor that oh, was very whoa, whoa, whoa. no no go back to adam Sa- that's adam sandler's whoa. Tracks. Well, okay okay sorry okay i you're absolutely right i'm sorry you were absolutely absolutely right that was very much a huge thing for sandler i totally i totally take it back you're right you're right um, he was kind of the precursor to the that part of the andy Sanders yeah. experience. Yeah, 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 yeah. Had, had he come along 10 years later that would have been he'd have been at the, the youtube side but yeah yeah no, no, that's, that's a really good point i totally overlooked sandler Speaking of music, though, I think we need to just have a real quick, you know, rundown of one of the things that made SNL kind of a cool experience was that you you always had a special guest, right? Who is somebody, some A-lister or something like that who showed up and, and got involved. And sometimes it worked better than others, right? You always had a musical guest. A musical guest shows up to do two songs, right? And you can kind of benchmark how deep you are in the show by the musical acts that show up. You can't really talk about the show without talking about the music and the musical guests. So I'd love to get your your sense of, you know, what are some of your favorite musical guests over the course of the show? And why do you like that particular performance so much? Tom, you want to start? Well, I mean, my favorite musical guest wasn't even the official uh, musical guest in the, in the thing I'm thinking of. February, March, like 87, Valerie Bertinelli hosts Saturday Night Live and she brings along her husband, Eddie Van Halen. And, uh, you know, I've been a slobbering Van Halen fan all of my life. You know, this was one of those things where like, he wasn't even the musical guest, but he was just kind of tagging along with his wife. They put him in a skit and, uh, you know, which was barely even funny, but, you know, then they decide, uh, GE Smith, you know, who's the you know, head of the, the band there, ex, you know, Hall and Oates guy, he toured with a lot of people decides he's going to put Eddie like, in sitting in with the band because he has the flexibility to do that. He's allowed to bring in whatever musicians are around who want to sit in with the band. So they do this thing, you know, like Eddie brings in a riff and, you know, GE Smith and his buddy, everybody gets together and they just compose this quick little three minute song called Stompin' 8H, which was, I guess, named after the studio that they did it in. They go out and they do it live 
it brings the freaking house down. Eddie like comes out and he brings out every trick in the book, you know, the tapping, the whammy bar, dive bombs, all the, you know, the, the crazy stuff that, you know, I love about him playing as a guitarist. When I was done and, and I saw the end of that three minutes, like my jaw was on the floor. And I remember vividly that no one could talk about anything else in school the next day. We wasted half of like a biology class talking about how good that performance was. And that is going to be my all time favorite musical uh, interlude on that show ever. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I saw it again today. It is freaking amazing. I mean, it is there's there is like seven minutes worth of music in a three minutes period of time it's it's fantastic and i never was a fan of ge smith i always thought he was an overbearing doofus to be honest with you he always, <laughs> he, always he looks like a jerk yeah he looks like he's having like like twice as much fun as the situation merits I'm like dude stop trying so hard man knock yeah. it off and and wearing the tuxedo shirt and all that like come quit all right already please just knock it off a bit hard in that yeah he, he, he really <laughs> over egged it but and and in the van halen thing he does it too they play the sublime three minutes. It's fantastic. And then G.E. Smith gives Eddie a clap, like a good boy clap on the back. I'm like, dude, you're clapping Eddie <laughs> on the back? Uh, you might want to slow that roll a little bit there, my friend, because, dude, he did you a favor by showing up and effortlessly shredding the universe on your stage. So maybe just say thank you and move on, you know? <laughs> but no, you're right. That, that song is He wasn't even the official musical guest. They had Robert no. Gray on, you know? <laughs> <laughs> nobody remembers what a that, shame so, yeah, what, what a shame, shame. <laughs> <laughs> so, so good so 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 uh chris what's your, what's your favorite musical guest uh my my favorite is uh january 17th 1998 sarah michelle geller hosted and portishead was the mm. musical guest and i had never i i had uh i i had returned just two years before a year and a half before from living in england and I had heard the name Portishead any number of times while I was there, but I'd never really listened to them. I see this band play, and oh, I know these guys, or I know who they are. And watching them was weird because it, it was like I don't know. There, there were the, the band was huge. There was at least eight people, and it was as though each of them was playing like one note every third measure. It was this uh, song called "Only You" that they played first, and it's just this slow sort of meditative, sexy song. And I, I had never seen anything like it and, or heard anything like it. And it changed my musical taste forever. Indirectly made me a Radiohead fan. In fact, really, in addition to being a Portishead fan, they, they just sort of led me, led me yeah. in that direction. Interesting. Um, Joe, what's your favorite? Uh, well, you know, I, I can remember back in early 1994 when uh, being a, a huge Star Trek next generation fan, even though I was in college at the time, Patrick Stewart hosted. He was not memorably good. I mean, there were, there were some skits that were interesting, but one in particular that was him being a, a erotic cake baker and interacting with Mike Myers and all this other stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, right? We, not so we and freaking huge. But the, um, <laughs> there comes a time for him to introduce Salt and Pepper. And he does so, and he's done everything. Every skit he's done, he's done in the same Shakespearean, Stentorian fashion. And when he comes to introduce Salt and Pepper, and now Salt and Pepper. And it's just, it's, it's gut-bustingly funny. But I got to go two years earlier than that. 
And before you go always... any further, though, to this day, my, my friend Jay and I, when we, when we're using condiments, we always go, salt and pepper. And now, <laughs> salt and pepper. We yeah, always right? call I, for I, it. Because yeah. he was, honestly, he was, he, 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 he delivered it like he was delivering, like, a speech from Henry, Henry V. Like, it was so funny. <laughs> he never, he had no idea who that was. <laughs> yeah. Salt and pepper somehow yeah, exactly. got the same gravity as anything else. It was, it was just so funny to see him do it. You're like, God bless you, Patrick Stewart. God bless you forever. So, I'm is this a musical guest I see before me? Yes. <laughs> and, and so, but two, you, you rewind two years before that. I'm in high school and I'm dating the first real girlfriend I've ever had. And we are staying up watching Saturday Night Live, where I think juniors or seniors in high school. And uh, and Vogue is the musical guest, and they're doing what? And they're doing uh, Never Gonna Get It. And they're in like the. It's not quite like lingerie, but like you know, scantily clad. And she gets up and she's dancing along with them, to and. and sort of quasi performing this I like where this is going and fellas i will never forget forum. <laughs> i will and, and let's just say that the the name of that song was misplaced <laughs> that's funny you know my my favorite well, i shouldn't say my it's not my favorite musical guest um it's it, but it is definitely my moment of truth one which is um frankie goes to hollywood played on the show in 1984 and they played two tribes and they played uh born to run their cover of born to run both off of the um welcome to the pleasure dome debut album and at that time they were pretty big on mtv like relaxed was a pretty big hit and two tribes was actually a really cool video as well that i was watching i was watching all the time really really enjoyed it so i was kind of into the band a bit and they're going to be on the show and I'm thinking, oh, rock on. I can't wait to see this. And I happened to, it was, again, I just happened to luck out and catch this episode where they played. And they played two tribes. And I watched that performance again today. And it's not as bad as I remembered it being. But I remember at the time being really deflated because I knew what these guys sounded like. And they sounded like just hot garbage on that stage. Holly Johnson did not sound right. The backup singer was just all over the place. You know, the sound didn't fill the space properly. And just the levels were all felt off. And I was like, man, they sound awful. And I remember feeling bad for them. And I remember feeling bad for enjoying their music because they sounded like crap on live TV. And it made it to the point where I actually had this weird sensation like I often would feel nervous if I saw a band I liked playing on SNL because I was afraid they were going to sound like crap. And I was going to have to hear it from my friends on Monday that, hey, man, this band you like was on SNL and they really bottled it. you know. And for a long time, I didn't look forward to the music on SNL because I was so afraid it was always going to sound terribly. You know? I cannot believe that we have gotten through this without discussing Sinead O'Connor. Sinead O'Connor. I was wondering about that too. Well, yeah. Sinead O'Connor is another big one for me because the way she infamously ripped up a picture of, of Pope John Paul II at the end of her performance. And my, my understanding is that initially she was going to rip up something else. She was singing, I, I think she was singing a version of Bob Marley's War and was going to rip up a picture of a Bosnian child, like a refugee child from the Balkan Civil War in rehearsal my understanding is that that's what she was doing in rehearsals and they're okay with that right and then at the end she switched up and ripped up a tore up a picture of the pope like this is the real enemy uh because she was calling out systemic child abuse in the catholic church but she suffered like you know we thought we talk about cancel culture now man Sinead got canceled hard oh, yeah. over that oh, i mean everybody came out uh, against her i mean even tim robbins who was the host that night and a and a pretty 
uh, faithful Catholic, didn't even acknowledge her as a musical guest at the end of the show. He wouldn't even mention her name, you know, and people just wow. lined up to take a piece out of her. And she still never backed down from that, which takes a whole, no. whole lot of courage, I think. That speaks to the um the live nature of the show right interesting things happen um <laughs> like like the lip syncing <laughs> well the actually yeah 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 actually simpson right no and, even only actually simpson in actually 2004 simpson. she does that thing where she plays pieces of me and then it's gonna play autobiography and then pieces of me starts playing and she's like wait what and starts doing this the most awkward and cringy jig as she doesn't know what to do with herself That's a commercial yeah. and then and then and then, no, they never no they let her hang she ended up leaving the stage and then they cut because they're like, what's going on here? And they typically don't lip sync on the show. And Lauren Michaels even like went out and kind of, you know, chastised her in public for it. And like, I'm, and I'm thinking, that's a little harsh, Lauren. I mean, you ran the show. You let her lip sync. Yeah. Why, why, why are you getting on her now? It's your show, dude. You determine what goes on there. You know, from the Super Bowl for years, you know, they lip sync, right? Like it's a, yeah. it's a performance. There was a year, a few years back where it was uh, Gwen Stefani and Sting. And they are clearly not lip syncing. And they're out of breath. And they're jumping around. And they're missing notes. And they're all over the place. And I'm thinking... I'll take this 10 times over oh, yeah. performance. I, I, you know, the energy sure. is different and the, yeah. the reality of like, I'd rather have somebody give me a, a strong 80% performance that's live than mm -hmm. you know, trying to oh, act for sure. out. That for sure. I guess this is around like 2010 or so. And I, I am not a Kanye West fan and he's since been on the show. And every time he shows up, something blows up. Right. He had had some long running feud with Lauren Michaels and somehow they quashed it and he got him back on the show and he did a version of power. Um, which he edited for SNL because the original lyrics are all they're like shots fired at SNL and Lauren Michaels specifically, like pretty profane lyrics, but he cut them out and rewrote the song in part to play it on SNL. And it's a, it's a pretty awesome tune actually, but I was I always thought it was kind of fascinating that like the, the importance of being on the show was such that it could be a fulcrum to make even a guy like Kanye West somehow figure out how to broker a truce with Lauren Michael. But one, one last thing I would like to note before we part, uh, and it, it regards this this issue of, of live television there i think have been 14 episodes in history of uh someone dropping an f-bomb on snl and wow that's pretty pretty interesting isn't it? i mean we sort of go along with our censorship and you know it's, it's just not that big a deal in, <laughs> yeah. in, the, in the in the in the in the in the grand scheme of things as as much as uh you know the FCC would like it to be. <laughs> the kids are ostensibly in bed, you know. <laughs> well, well, I think I think none of them could ever be as big as the first one that got dropped, which is when uh, was it Charles Rocket? I guess dropped it at the end of an episode during that infamous 1980-81 season. Where yep, that I believe whole, that was a him. whole parody off of uh, Who Shot Jr. It looked like they intentionally sort of worked it in, and it's like when he drops it. You know, I mean, that got him fired. That got ultimately got his boss fired. That was sort of like the thing that really sort of crumbled the wall and made them reshuffle the show. But a lot of the other ones that have happened over the years, I, I'm not really familiar with it. I don't ever remember there being such a big kerfuffle over, over an F-bomb, an errant F-bomb being dropped in the show. That um, was actually not the first one, though. Uh, Paul, oh, really? Paul Schaefer was the first. <laughs> Paul Schaefer, really? Paul Schaefer. God bless him. When did that happen? Uh, 1980, uh, like a year before Charles Rocket. No way. That's awesome. Yeah. Get off with your bad self, Paul. That's awesome, dude. That's <laughs> a great guy to own the first F. Right? No, yeah, like, right? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want Paul Schaefer to have that. <laughs> yeah, no. Have a big golden bejeweled F you can wear on his belt buckle, you know? Like, yeah. A medallion. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know? Oh, it's so good. That's so good. Before we wrap up, let me drop my final thoughts on, on all this. This podcast is about the things that the four of us don't just geek out over, but have geeked out over for a fairly long period of time. So when we decided to talk about SNL, you know, we pretty quickly came to a unanimous vote that we were going to do this. But as I did my homework for the episode, I was swiftly reminded of the hard truth about me and SNL, which is that I am more ignorant of this show than I am knowledgeable about it. And that's the trick with a show that is so long running. It's, it's tough to go back and to binge it from the beginning. And there's kind of a weird sense not to, since it's such a constant part of one's background as you grow up. You know, we tend to remember the things we love most about SNL over the years and forget most of what we didn't like. And since fully half of the skits in any given episode don't really succeed, it's easy to forgive oneself for having you know, years-long gaps in their knowledge about SNL and still feel qualified to get philosophical about it. Um, so as I prepped for this episode, my daughter told me about her favorite sketch, which is a recent one in which Adam Driver uh, shows up as Kylo Ren, a parody of Undercover Boss, right? <laughs> okay, Boomer. It just, it's, just, it's, so good. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. But she is as far removed from the early Blues Brothers and Roseanne, Roseanne and Dana days as it gets. And yet that didn't matter. Her distance from that origin of the show in no way prevented her from accessing SNL now and driving joy from it. And I think that's the real magic of SNL. You know, for its many missteps and flat jokes and on-air fiascos and more, it still produces a collective experience that few of us would choose to live entirely without. Everybody has their own SNL. And in its way, for a show that everybody knows, nobody really knows each other's SNL perfectly. It's something that no one will ever know comprehensively. And in so doing, it transcends being just a factory of funny business. It becomes something that we can use to come together and laugh. And in poking fun at everyone and everything, SNL has over its many long years and many different evolutions become something more than funny. It's become important. Chris, Joe, Tom, thanks so much for dropping in today. It was great to have you on the show once again. Thanks to everyone listening, and we will see you again here on Moments of Truth. Bye now. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.